Welcome to The Hero's Journey, a podcast that explores the lives, challenges, and triumphs of some of our planet's greatest activists. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host and your guide, as we wander across our digitally connected planet and learn just what people are doing to make this world a better place. From lawyers to chefs, students to elders, this podcast is as much about strategy as it is about hope and inspiration. When it comes to overcoming the impossible, sometimes you have to see it and hear it to believe it. Welcome back to The Hero's Journey. In this episode, I sat down with one of my mega muses, Yada Peng from Just Fund. We talk about the large-scale philanthropic ecosystem and how her platform, Just Fund, is transforming the way that wealth moves. And she offers a really compelling story of how innovations like Just Fund can move capital to the groups that are actively transforming the structures that so many of us are fighting against. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the podcast and we'll just get rolling. There doesn't need to be like a welcome to the podcast, Yada Peng. Yada, like yada, 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 who I definitely thought it was a lowercase L. I was like, oh, she's like bell hooks. She does. (laughs) Brown. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And wait, your family's from Brazil, right? Mm -hmm. So is mine. (laughs) Yeah, my mom grew up in Rio. My grandmother still lives there. Why don't I remember this? E você fala português? No, no fala. Uh, my mom was an expat living there, but my grandmother, who's a freaking boss babe, is going to be on the podcast next week. And we're so excited. She's 92. She's been a women's health advocate in the favelas of Brazil since the 60s. She was like smuggling in birth control and like teaching women about their periods when it was considered, you know, blasphemy by the Catholic church. Um, so, wow. I want to hear that. Yeah. 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 She's just a, she's incredible. She actually has a book. It's called like when women speak mountains move or something. Sorry, Nana for not having the right title. (laughs) Um, but I'll send it to you because it's all stories from the women that she's worked with. Um, and her like theory of change is like, you teach a woman about her menstrual cycle and you change your life, Mm. Mm -hmm. you know, and especially in a country where birth control and abortion were so heavily restricted for so long. Yeah. That fertility awareness method is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's like, has these stories about, you know, living in this community in Rio, she always lived like in the communities where she worked. So here she's a, a daughter of the CEO of Seagram's. So this wealthy girl moves to Brazil, leaves her husband, like uh, moves into favelas and then um, starts doing women's advocacy work, is providing all this women critical health care. And then like one day her TV, all her, her like shanty shack got robbed and like all her nice things got stolen. She like went out in the street. She's like, I don't know who needs to hear this, 
but somebody's girlfriend is not going to get their birth control <laughs> if you do not bring my TV back. <laughs> and like six hours later, her TV rolls back in. <laughs> wow. Worry. What a life. What a life. What a life. But let's talk about your life. So the purpose of this podcast is to actually talk about personal journeys into activism. So while I really want you to lay out the broad theory of change behind Just Fund, I want to start with you. Like, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah. How did you end up working with Van Jones? Let's follow that path. Right. I mean, gosh, you know, I think I, um, I'll start with my own family. You know, I'm first generation American. I was the first one in my family born here. My dad immigrated to Brazil from China. You know, their family fled the cultural revolution. He was born in Porto Alegre, where he met my mom at age 14. They were high school sweethearts. And he was very involved in his um, student body at the university. And um, actually was when the military dictatorship took over um, in the 70s, he was incarcerated in Brazil um, as a student leader and endured torture daily. Um, And my grandfather was finally able to get him out. And then they fled to the United States. Um, You know, my dad ended up coming here to get his um, PhD in chemical engineering, even though he wanted to be a doctor. That's what he was able to come and do. And it was interesting because the group that my mom and dad were part of, you know, they went to Peru, they went to other um, states and other countries in South America. And my parents coming to the United States was seen as like a huge, you know, slap in the face because this was a U.S.-backed military dictatorship in Brazil. So they came here and were isolated, you know, didn't have community. Um, And and even though we didn't talk about my history, I feel like that's just been... um, part of who I am. You know, I remember when I was in college, my dad's like, why are you studying political science? What are you doing studying democracy? Because he'd never told me this story and couldn't understand how it had been passed down through my blood. Right. And finally, when I heard my story, I was like, oh, it makes so much sense why I studied citizenship education and trying to understand what it takes to make democracy work. Why was, why did I even care? You know, all my friends are doing business and computer science and everything else. And here was this like very like real commitment to democracy and understanding how, how we preserve democracy. And so I started my journey really early, you know, in high school and college and um, studying things like participatory democracy. And I went to the Kettering Foundation and studied, um, you know, things like national issues forums and deliberative democracy, and then went to Columbia and got my master's in nonprofit management. And really at that point started building nonprofits. Um, a couple of people came into my life at that point that really helped, you know, me on my journey. And that's uh, Daniel Katz was one of the first people that I met who we wrote together a book up on my shelf called Why Freedom Matters. It's a book that toured around the country with the Declaration of Independence His father-in-law, my mentor, Norman Lear, and his wife purchased the only originally owned copy of the uh, privately owned copy of the Declaration of Independence. And then he decided it belonged in the hands of the people. And so we wrote this book, Why Freedom Matters, to travel with the Declaration across city after city um, to make sure people had a chance to bring the ideas home. And you just pause and say, I didn't know this chapter. You just continue to fucking amaze me. 
You know, one of my um, best stories about the like really um, crazy things that happened in my life when 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 the when the, um, the Declaration of Independence road trip kicked off, it kicked off in New York City with a spoken word event, and it was, it was a beautiful event where where this this nonprofit you know originated. And at the end of the event, it's like midnight, and we're taking Norman's plane to Vermont for like a uh, all hands meeting, and he says to me, "Hey." Um, we're going to need to drive the Declaration of Independence up to Vermont because the plane's insurance won't cover the document if something were to happen to us. I'm going to need you to rent a car and drive because I had the New York driver's <laughs> license and drive the Declaration of Independence in the trunk of your car from New York to Vermont at like one o'clock in the morning. So I actually drove the Declaration of Independence in the back of my car when I said, someone else is going to have to come with me. I can't take this thing by myself. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> So this poor girl drove with me and she like turned around the whole time was like watching the back window to see who's following us, <laughs> but it made it, made it to its destination safe and sound. That's um, wild. Yeah. But in that space and like with Norman um, and touring this book, I, I learned about Patrick Henry college, which is this college for evangelical students who are being home, who were homeschooled, who were being groomed for positions for congressional aid positions and, really just an intentional conservative pipeline of, of building leaders and putting them into positions of influence and, 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 and proximate power. And they, and I said to Norman, I remember looking over my newspaper and saying, have you heard of this? Like Patrick Henry college and why aren't we doing something? And he looks over his paper and says, you should go build that. And that's when I started building young people for young elected officials network. And I partnered with then 23 year old city council person who just graduated from Florida a and University on like $5,000 and a bunch of shoe leather won his city council, city commission race. That was Andrew Gillum, you know, eons ago. And we started building this pipeline for young people of color to get into positions of, of elected leadership. Um, and that really catalyzed this idea of, hey, we've got to figure out the bottlenecks and the barriers to building power in our communities who are chronically underfunded, historically excluded from every system. And of course, there's systemic racism, you know, everywhere. And it's no different in philanthropy, even though philanthropy is supposed to be the place that kind of brings about equity. It's not right. There's rooted systemic racism at every piece in the process. And that's why we're seeing our communities funded at like 4% of all of philanthropic dollars going to communities of color. And there's, there are solutions, right? And that's when I started really getting excited about, hey, let's innovate in this space and let's experiment and let's figure out what's going to break the dam and start to fund equitably our communities. So I want to go back to this moment when you're driving the Declaration of Independence from New York to Vermont in the middle of the night. And you're doing this as a first-generation immigrant, the daughter of somebody who's been in prison for his political beliefs. And you're also thinking about the co-optation of this very government by U.S. right-wing conservatives. Like, how do you maintain a sense of purpose and hope amidst those deep paradoxes? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I reflect on those paradoxes now. I think when you're in it, you know, you're you're doing the next the next right thing, you know, in life. And I think that's what I've continually guided me of like, where there's a need, fill it. 
you know, you do the next thing that you can do and the next thing that you can do. And I think Martin Luther King said, you take the next step, even if you can't see the whole staircase. And I think that's how I've really lived my life. I just take the steps and know and trust that I'm going in the right direction. Other people are going to be coming in around me and I'm going to be coming in around other people for us to actually get to where we need to go, you know? And so in that moment, it was really around, hey, gosh, you know, our leadership isn't reflective. There aren't people who look like us, you know, in positions of leadership. We we can change that, especially when you think about local races, you can change it with not a lot of money, right? And these young people who have the heart and the will and the networks, you know, can actually run and win. And once they run and win, they're going to stay in elective office. They're going to continue this journey, you know, for a lifetime. I think about Kevin Killer in South Dakota, who was the first young people for fellow who went through frontline leaders who became a young elected officials official in our network. And he ran for state assembly, served two terms, then ran for state Senate, served a term, and now is, is running for her second term as Ogallala Lakota tribe president. Mm. Right. I mean, this is, this is how we, we build durable power by investing in, in people. And it's perfect that we're having this conversation. Our our previous episode to you is with uh, Senator Chris Lee, who ran for office at 23 as a man of color in Hawaii, which isn't that notable, the man of color in Hawaii, just because we are legislatures predominated by settler Asian men. However, nevertheless, builds this incredible two decades body of work. Um, pioneering on clean energy. And I guess, I I mean, I want to go back to then, but I'm wondering now, like given our crisis of democracy right now and the sort of like dissolving of these core institutions like elections, like our media scape, like, do you feel like things are getting better and that's why they're getting worse? Or do you feel like they're just getting worse? Look, I think there is a reckoning, you know, um, especially in philanthropy, when you you look at how we are so surprised that we're not making progress on these issues. And yet 4% of let's call it 450 billion goes to communities of color. How are we supposed to make progress on the issues, these systemic issues, if we're not funding people closest to those issues, who therefore are closest to the solutions? We're not funding people who are directly impacted. And so we're surprised when we get to like solutions that don't hold, mm-hmm. you know, that don't actually take hold, that don't actually root. Um, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, we have to change the way we fund. And it's not just the who we fund which is really important. And you see a lot of great movements out there like donors of color network saying, hey, 30% of your income of your philanthropy should be going to communities of color where your baselines and foundations are like, I don't know what I'm currently funding, right? So you got to first get your baselines and then kind of set your targets. That's good in terms of the who we're funding, but it's also the how we move money that continues continues to keep people out of the system, right? Out of this um the flow of, of philanthropy. If, if you don't have 40 hours to apply for funding, if you don't know um, where to apply, you're not going to get the money. Right. And those are our communities of color. 
It's interesting because my own path as an activist led me to philanthropy too, particularly as an educated white woman, realizing that I had that kind of like positional similarity with other white female donors, of which there are a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet your solution is a really out of the box offering in terms of the philanthropic sector. So I'm wondering if you can lay out what is Just Fund and how does it kind of build on this theory that until we move money to communities of color, we're not going to see the transformation of systems to serve communities of color. Absolutely. I mean, you you said it so well. I mean, that's the that's the problem, you know, is that our communities are chronically underfunded. So then you have to ask the question, why? And you take a look at some of the systems of philanthropy and you realize how exclusionary it is and how expensive it is. And so therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that money is flowing to the communities that flows. So the exclusionary part is we fund who we know. Hmm. So if we don't have communities of color in our networks and our personal networks, our professional networks, they're probably not getting funded, right? And if these groups don't know where to apply for funding, they're not getting getting access. And so access is a really important piece of equity. Um, and we have limited access, you know, and we do a lot of by invitation only grant cycles. So we're continuing to fund just our who we know. That's one. And two, it's just super expensive. The process that we've inherited and continue to move forward with is a very expensive one. I mean, you're talking about, you know, some 10, 15, 25 hours just to apply for funding, sometimes 40 hours. That's like $5,000 of time or opportunity cost of time, right? To apply for funding, which usually people get 30% of who you, of what you apply to, you get, right? That's, those, are, those odds aren't great especially for for organizations that have a part-time ED and no development director. You know, a lot of our groups run on sweat equity. So we've been taught to do more with less, but what if we did, what if we had more? You know, what could we do then? Um, So those are the systems that I think are really broken. And especially when you think about individual donors who, you know, have now $160 billion, you know, kind of warehoused and donor advised funds not moving, right? They're not required to move that money. Um, and it just sits and grows, we need to break the dam and get that money flowing to our communities. And that's really what Just Fund does. It's a system that makes grant making simple and easy the way it should be for grant makers and for grant seekers, right? Where a group can come in and use a common app, take them an hour to apply the first time, maybe 20 minutes, the second, third, fourth, and 37th time they come in to apply to one fund, they can apply to any fund. That's access, right? That's making it, um, you know, philanthropic dollars and funding opportunities accessible. And then they can come in and get funded by, you know, a bunch of folks, not just the one fund that they knew about. And on the other hand, then individual donors are now coming into the portal and they can search, you know, 10,000 organizations that are coming from this values aligned community, which is really important. You know, not everyone's in just fund. It's a values aligned community trying to reset philanthropy, like saying we want to do better. We're going to learn together. We're going to take these steps together. Now individual donors can come and search 26 different filters and see who else is funding these groups. So hopefully they can start to take more risk and fund outside their existing networks. So I think for folks who are just tuning in and kind of wondering where this conversation comes from, can you lay out a little bit like what is the nonprofit industrial complex? Like for the groups that are getting funded right now, we know some things about why they're successful. And I'm talking about massively funded organizations who have 
budgets in the millions, CEOs getting paid sometimes eight, seven figures. Like, tell us a little bit about the dominant nonprofit model and why philanthropy serves that model. I mean, look, philanthropy was set up to to solve problems that government couldn't or wouldn't. And that was too risky for private sector to take a chance on, right? I mean, so you're talking about, um, you know, a system where you're set up to actually try to solve some of these systemic issues that no one else is going to address. So by definition, you'd think that philanthropy would be society's risk capital because that's what it was designed to be. And it's really turned in to something very different, right? Like we're supposed to take risks and fail, fail, fail frequently and get to the right solutions. I, I'm going to just I just tell a story really quickly. I met with this incredible person who founded a great online company. I won't say which one, but a really incredible guy, um, a white man who'd, who'd, who founded one of the big online companies. And he said to me, you know, I failed five times before I got to this winning solution. And I was like, wow, you failed five times before you got to this winning model. Like, yeah. And then I asked, well, who invested in you? You know, how did you get people to come back and like new people to invest? He's like, oh no, the same people invested in me and they invested in me to fail because they knew that I'd somehow, I would eventually get to this winning model. Right. And it's like, um, we should do that. Mm. Right. Philanthropy can do that. We're the only ones who are here forever because <laughs> we set up our foundations in perpetuity, right? And we're giving out 5%. This is the model. So we are actually, by our construct, the ones that can fund long-term, stay with organizations and take big risks, right? Because we're going to be there through the failures to get to the right solutions. But it's interesting because we're, we're, we're moving in this other direction that really I find very problematic, which is let's get to that winning idea. What's the one that's going to win? And I got to see those results right away. And especially when it comes to impact investing and all these other models that we're moving into, it's like you need to see that financial return on investment when really our sector's design, this philanthropic sector is designed to do something very different mm. um, and can take risks on innovative ideas and, you know, um, you know, I, you know, ideas who, who, that haven't been proven yet, right. And investing communities that um, haven't received those big investments. Like this is what we're designed to do. This is our moment to shine. Right. And we just are continuing to shy away from it. Instead we fund, you know, the easy kind of, um, you know, solutions. And also, you know, we want, we want our names on buildings. So we're funding, you know, religious institutions, we're funding education disproportion. Those are the two biggest ways that we spend money, then healthcare and all these other things kind of follow, you know, around. And then you've got social change or social justice or racial justice, like a tiny sliver of all of the billions that we move every year. So here's how it goes for folks who are listening. Wealthy folks use the tax shelter of a foundation to set aside dollars that they are then required to spend 5% of year over year. So folks can sort of imagine that um, these are dollars that presumably would be our tax dollars that we could all collectively decide how they're spent. And yet they're moved into these foundations. You know, you look at someone who's as generous as Mackenzie Scott and, you know, billions of dollars sometimes, but they're moved into this institution that's only required to spend 5%. And in order to get that 5%, 
more and more and more, you have to have a sexy development office to make your quote unquote winning solution match the vision that's set by this private individual who set aside this money, which should actually belong in the hands of people. So that's the kind of overarching picture. And what we see year over year, decade over decade, after the sort of establishment of this sector, is that less and less of that money is going to solve systemic social issues. And a lot of it's going to naming buildings after ourselves and funding colleges and funding maybe large-scale institutions that have the money to send you fundraising letters week over week, month after month, call after, uh, call after call. Yeah. And you're getting a tax deduction for doing it, right? So, I mean, you're, you're, you're incentivized to actually put that money, you know, um, into a foundation structure. And like you said, the the ceiling isn't 5%, the floor is, you know, and, and that's the problem is that people treat that 5% like the ceiling. And it's like, nope, actually you're just required to give out five, but there's nothing stopping you from giving out more. Mm. And, you know, you start, you're starting to see some foundation sunset, right? Saying, Hey, I think that organizations could do that, could hand, could manage this money better than me. You know, and you're starting to see like Susan Sandler funds, Stupsky foundation, other folks, the Whitman Institute and others saying, yeah, this, I don't need this in perpetuity. And can you help people understand the difference between a foundation and a DAF just because we threw that out? Sure. Anyone can start a donor advised fund, right? There are lots of places where you can start one, whether it's your community foundation, you know, you can start one at Hoivai Fund, for example, you know, you can start uh, a fund, basically a donor advised fund with $500, right? Some, some have no floor, but when you decide you want to start a fund, you get that tax deduction for moving that money into your donor advised fund right away. So it can be 500, could be a million, could be 25 million, whatever it is that you want to do. And and that donor advised fund is there for you to when you're ready, move the money out. But you're not required by law to move that money out ever. It can just sit there, right? There's legislation I, you know, that's under consideration to change that, but then that money can just sit. You can also pay salary out of that. You know, there's a lot of things that you can be doing that could be seen as self-serving. Sorry, um, you cut out a little bit. You said you could pay salaries out of that. Yeah, you could pay salaries out of that. So there are some things you can do out of your donor advised fund to operate your foundation, right? Versus giving that money out. So it's really this, it's just this space that you can, that that exists where individual donors now can operate, you know, where they can put their money into a donor advice fund and then move that money out when they're ready to any organization, right? So there's, and all of philanthropy, there's no accountability, really. I mean, it's, you know, the board of directors, but you're not going to like, it's not like in government where if you don't do a good job, you're not going to get reelected, maybe, you know, um, <laughs> but, you know, and it's not like private sector. Like if you don't get the financial ROI, you're going to get fired, right? This is just an industry that's just largely unaccountable, whether it's a foundation that you set up that has staff and like a separate tax, you know, 990, where you can see where all the money's going and how they're spending the money. The DAF is really like a black hole. I, you know, when you, you don't get to see what Yada Peng's DAF is doing. You get to see what my entity that holds my DAF is doing, but I, you don't ever get to see exactly what's, what I have done with my money or haven't done. 
So not only do we have the creation of foundations to serve as a tax shelter for the wealthy, but then we also have the emergence of this trend in philanthropy to move money into DAFs, which are even more obscure, more unaccountable. And between, the, between these two dominant systems in philanthropy, the effect is that by and large, the groups that get funded are led by white folks, led by educated folks, led by settlers. What are the parts of the system, just to break it down a little more, that make the current structure of philanthropy so hard for people of color to tap? I mean, there are a lot of, of challenges. I mean, the first one is is the exclusionary nature that we talked about earlier that I would say you fund who you know, right? And you set up these portfolios against some one person's interests. And especially when you set up a foundation in perpetuity, meaning you're going to put in a hundred million, you're spending 5% a year, that foundation is going to exist for generations. You're still following that, that donor's interest, right? And trying to figure out how to operationalize that interest. And a lot of that means you're going to fund who you know. And like you said, you know, the Black, Indigenous, people of color-led work tends to be smaller, right? We've learned to do more with less. Um, And we're accustomed to sweat equity, you know, where we get our work done based on our our labor, but not even getting paid for it. There's a lot of the volunteer culture and people are doing this work, you know, as a side project, critical work, right? Um, until it kind of gains enough traction that it can get seen and visible to to, to foundations and to philanthropy. Um, what one thing that I'm seeing this is a you know is is more of an of an interest from organizations to build independent power through independent revenue. Because when you think about the whole of philanthropy and the 450 billion that moves annually, 70 percent of that money is from individuals. Right. And so that's actually small donors in most cases giving out those resources, um, not foundations. I think they I think it's something like six percent of money you know, is coming. So actually, there's this whole pool of like us funding us. Right. The democratizing philanthropy side of the equation, um, which to me gets is really exciting in terms of potential of how we kind of can disrupt this system um, and why our communities aren't being funded because they don't they aren't proximate to power. They don't know who's who's giving out the money and they don't have the infrastructure, right? We don't have a small donor manager, a major gifts officer, a development director. We don't have that that capacity and infrastructure to actually navigate this very complicated system and the time to actually be building relationships with the folks we need to move the money. So I'd say, you know, those are some of the really big barriers. Um, And then I'd say it's trust. You know, I think it takes time to build trust. And um, we fund our people in our networks, went to school where we went to school. And so when you're funding outside your, of your network, you have to have the time and the willingness or the interest to be in, you know, in relationship with folks. And, and that takes time and trust. Yeah. You know, something that I've run into in my capacity of running a foundation is that there is just a dramatic difference between the size of the ask for a small grassroots nonprofit led by a Native Hawaiian or a person of color versus the size of the ask for from the large national nonprofit 
that is doing work that oftentimes claims the impact of the grassroots organizations led by people of color, meaning you'll get a national environmental org to ask for $50,000 year over year to help build healthy ecosystems in Hawaii. And I'll see a fish pond manager who's actively restoring indigenous food systems ask for $5,000. And, you know, even the ask sort of sets the stage of the conversation for me. Um, And I, and so it's like, yeah. And, you know, we, we do, one does really hard work to um, build relationships of trust um, in communities where they're not active participants, let's say, um, in Hawaii as a settler here, really trying to build authentic, durable relationships with communities of color and Native Hawaiians. Um, and yet, we will oftentimes run into a project that we want to fund and they're like, no, we don't want your money. You know, and that is a moment of deep learning for me because money is not always seen as a medicine in certain circles or it's seen as problematic, particularly if you don't know who's giving it to you. So I'm thinking about all of that when I kind of want to just call out like the epic innovation that you're driving in Just Fund. Because I don't think without seeing the picture of what is, Mm -hmm. folks are really going to understand what it is that you've created. So let's go back to the like moment when you realized that you were going to flip the script and create something. And let's start with like the tiniest moment because Just Fund is comparatively massive now. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't always massive. So take us there. Yeah. So I was working at Solidaire Network, which is an incredible network um, of individual donors and institutions trying to move money in solidarity with social movements. And at the time when I got there, we had maybe 40 members. I think now it's well over 250. And we had a pooled fund, meaning that people would put $10,000, members would put $10,000 into a, into one account. And then Solidaire, the staff would run a grant cycle and we would, you know, identify what we wanted to fund with the members. And then we'd go out and find groups who would apply. And then we'd make decisions with our members and then we distribute the grants. That was the pooled fund model. And we would take in 300 applications every grant cycle and we would fund 15. 285 went right in the trash can. Mm. Really incredible work. That, I mean, anyone would want to like, wow, what, you know, this really like really grassroots, like uh, very frontline work doing incredible an example would be, you know, Mary Hooks over at Southerners organizing on a new ground, building black mama's bailout day, you know, on mother's day, bailing out black mothers um, from jail and running a campaign to raise, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to just bail out as many people as possible on mother's day. One example of like the innovations of what happens. I have like, I have goosebumps. (laughs) Right. This is what happens when you fund people closest to the issues, right? They're closest to the best solutions. When you fund people with direct lived experience, they're going to give you the solutions that are actually going to solve the issue. Um, Really beautiful work. Just an example of the 300 really incredible applications we'd get. We'd fund 15. We wouldn't fully fund them give them maybe 25,000 and 285 pieces of work went right in the trash can. And I just said, oh my gosh, 
we can do so much better. First of all, how they were applying took time for us to manage as staff because they would send us whatever proposal they had and then they'd update the proposal and we'd manage a Google Drive and we'd try to put all the information into a spreadsheet so people could read them and then rank them and then have a conversation with whoever. It was just a lot of work. And for the organizations, we realized, hey, some of our friends over at Emergent Fund, Defending the Dream Fund, they're funding the same groups. And we are asking them to do different systems, right? Come into this grants management system and and answer these 18 questions. Come to this grants management system and answer these other 26 questions. Like we just all had different processes. And we said, wait a minute, we we have to do better. If we want to move money in solidarity with social movements, this is our values are here. And our commitments here, our intentions here, but our processes are like someplace else. They're not, there's no alignment between like who we want to be and what we're actually doing. Mm. And so we said, what if we do a common grant application? Everyone, people have been talking about it for decades, right? Like 30 years and no one's done it. So let's just do it. And we got Emergent Fund, Solidaire and Defending the Dream Fund to say we're in. Because we knew we had heavy overlap of grantees. We didn't know exactly what, because we couldn't track. That was when the idea was born. And we built a very minimum viable product kind of a system where emergent, defending the dream and solidarity said, we're going to do the common app. It took us a while to, to get, agree on the questions and the filters and whatnot, but we built the foundation of what's now just fund. And we had 800 groups apply. They could apply to all three or just one fund. So you're in that moment saving them, you know, thousands and thousands of application hours collectively. Um, and then we were able to see and track who was funding what for the first time. We could see what Grants Emergent Fund made, what Defending the Dream made, what Solidaire made, and we could start to see our collective, you know, funding on these groups and start to see where the gaps were, where we couldn't do it on the phone or email. Like there's no other system to really understand the aggregate. Now, here was what really got me excited. We could take all those applications, right, into a portal and we could give our members access so that individual donors and institutions could now find and fund all those 800 organizations and make grants themselves. So even if the pool fund didn't fund them, someone else might find a match. Mm. And that's the beautiful part, right? I mean, we are a community of funders at Just Fund trying to reset philanthropy for good. And we are going to need that technology to help us, right? To see who else is funding what, to make it easy for groups to apply, make it easy for us to score and make decisions and start to identify where the need exists, you know, remains. And, and that that was how we started Just Fund. And it's evolved since then. We've moved $175 million collectively. What's exciting is 60% of those dollars are what we call leveraged dollars, meaning a group comes in to apply to Fund A, but actually gets funded by an individual donor or Fund B, C, D, E, right? And, and so it, you come in because of your relationship with decolonizing wealth. Let's say we run all of Liberated Capital's fund, Edgarville and Nueva, and that amazing group's fund, but they get funded by emergent fund or by an individual donor. So they're starting to build their own networks and we're giving them something they desperately need, which is access, right? To funding opportunities, amplifying their, their, their organization to a whole growing ecosystem of funders. And I think that's, this is, this is the bet we're making is that it's going to unlock capital that's been sitting or that's moving to, to groups that aren't on the front lines to communities that have been historically excluded and chronically underfunded. So tell me a story of a funder that wasn't on your platform, came on, and then like how they articulated the difference for you. Because I know you're not just offering services 
to the decolonizing wealth folks who all, who are already kind of aligned. Mm-hmm. You're also helping bring along more traditional funders. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that. I mean, you think about, let's take a traditional funder, a big foundation, right? Um, a lot of foundations have rules about who they can give to, right? And that's why they're not funding smaller groups. For example, a foundation might say um, they can only fund um, 20% of an organization's budget, <laughs> but their smallest grant size is 200000 That means they can't fund small groups, right? Because if a group comes in and says, I want you to fund me, but I'm only $250,000, that means that funder could only give a $50,000 grant, but it's too small. So we actually work with those institutional funders to move money to a combined impact fund where they can then do regranting through just fund, right? And then those groups don't have to spend 40 hours on their very elaborate questions that they ask groups to answer. They come in through the common app and we can regrant the money for them. So it really helps them fund the smaller groups because mechanically they cannot right? Based on their bylaws and however they're set up structurally. And this is a lot of large foundations. They can actually start to do the regranting through us and make it really easy for the groups. And, um, and then we can report in on how that 10 million or 5 million or whatever that amount was, how that was deployed. Right. So that's just talk really quickly about how fucking stupid certain grant applications are. I mean, I've filled out thousands of grant applications at this point, like, and at some point in the early aughts, somebody told philanthropy that they needed to include like quantitative metrics of impact to be demonstrated year over year. And it was the, for me, I mean, maybe I'm a social scientist, maybe I'm a poet, maybe I don't work well with numbers, but I found this question to be dizzying. And that would be one of 50 questions that a funder would ask for like a $10,000 grant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the systems I think are, you know, are set up where the program officers have to prove internally that what they're, what they're funding is making a difference. And how do you, you know, how do you track that impact? And instead of asking the group, Hey group, what do you think would be meaningful? They, they have, they fit into this whole institutional rubric of what the foundation thinks would be useful and meaningful in terms of an, a return on that investment. Um, and again, we've moved away from this idea of risk capital. Like, hey, let's let's get innovative. Let's experiment. Let's see what works and what doesn't work, right? And we're forced into this construct of like um, tap dancing. Well, we didn't fail, <laughs> right? Nope, everything's great. And we're not actually learning and being in a meaningful relationship. Whereas with my teams now, I mean, I've been building for 25 years, you know, nonprofits. Now I actually lean my teams into an agile style of, of building, um, you know, where our whole point is to fail and <laughs> fail really fast to get to the better solution. So even when it comes to like technology, hey, what if we build um, this scoring tool to do X, Y, Z? Okay, that doesn't work. Let's change it. Okay, that doesn't work. Let's change. You know, we get closer and closer to the solution, but we're, we're constantly trying um, to get to the these great models, but doing it, you know, spending our time where we think there's a high perceived impact and, a, a, you know, it's going to be easy for our team. So we kind of live in that space. Even as we grow and expand our businesses, like, you know, our, our lines of business, like, okay, well, they're regranting with large foundations or even with um, organizations doing regranting. Like, we don't want them to have to change their whole mission, 
right? To all of a sudden be a pass-through, which is mm-hmm. the new trend, right? Fund organizations to fund their peers. But foundations aren't thinking about the infrastructure now that these groups have to put in place to become a regranter and how yeah. they're putting their 501c3 status in jeopardy. Because what if they accidentally fund someone who's not doing C3 work, right? So if you could just take that burden now off of organizations so they can do the vision, the strategic thinking, and we can do the mechanics of the grant making, that really frees up people to do what we need them to do which is to be in trust-filled relationships with each other. We see it just fund money moves at the speed of trust. And I'm not talking about trust-based philanthropy. I'm just talking about like being in relationship and trusting the other person. Um, And that's how money moves. Mm. Can you, so what is the common app for just fund? For those who are listening and thinking like, I never applied for funding. I've been running this awesome nonprofit out of my kitchen for three years I've never gotten a dollar except from friends. Like what kind of questions do you think matter to be able to evaluate a project? Um, What we are asking, what we asked our advisory council to help us with when we first launched this is what's the bare minimum that you need to know? I know there are a lot of nice to have questions, but what what are the must-haves? And that was basically, what's your mission? Tell me about your organization. Who's on the team? What are you doing? And how are you going to spend the money? Just basically that. You know, so we have these org profiles for they can tell their story. What's my mission? What's my organization doing? Who's my team? Add photos, you know, videos to help people understand what the group's doing. And then, you know, you and that's that's basically your common app. Um and, you know, what's interesting is a lot of foundations that we're working with now and individual donors, they don't need a proposal to move the money. They're actually not even asking for the common proposal anymore. They just need the org information and they'll move the money. Mm. Right. So this is, there's there are some changes that we're seeing that we're trying to keep up on the platform of like lowest common de- denominator where people keep on pushing to like the least, which is very exciting. And we're pivoting to respond to that. Oh, you don't even need a common app. You just need the org information and you'll move the money. Okay, let's figure out how we do that. So we're 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 iterating and learning together as a community. There's, you know, almost a thousand funders inside the Just Fund community, you know, over six thousand organizations, and we're all learning together and figuring out, you know, what this technology can do in terms of moving money to historically excluded groups and doing it in the most um the least extractive, you know, most simplified manner. Can you give me the horizon line for for Just Fund? Like, where are you headed, and and how do you see your work as a part of this transformational movement in philanthropy? I mean, we want to be serving, you know, a thousand funds. We want the funds to be using the Common App, and so that when a group comes in to apply to Just Fund, they can apply to anything, just like the College Common App. You know, and you can just get your work in front of as many people as possible. You know, it's always free for organizations. Just Fund will always be free for organizations. And and we um, are able to support ourselves by asking, you know, foundations to pay us to run their grant cycle. So they use our technology. They leverage our expert team in terms of things like how do I design my RFP? What questions should I ask if I want to ask supplemental questions? Or how do I make decisions about who to who to fund? Like those are things now that we've run almost 300 grant cycles, we have a lot of visibility into those decision-making processes and can help funds get set up very quickly, right? So we have, you know, organizations that, for example, got like $5 million from a big foundation to re-grant and they're like, ah, 
how, what's, what, what do I do next? Right. What's my RFP? How am I making decisions on who I fund? And then like, how do I put a quick docket together for the funders? So they know who we actually ended up funding and, and who, who are these people that we funded? What's the impact? And just fund can aggregate all of that data really easily. Again, we take care of the transactional and the administrative so that folks who are actually moving money can do the transformative, which is what we think will actually unlock more capital to communities who've been chronically underfunded. And there's a lot to say about your own development and management of your transactional team, because I think a lot of community partners are get lost and choose to leave because of the sometimes alienating transactional nature of traditional grant making. So can you sort of lay out what it might be like if I get the the chutzpah up to apply for my grassroots organization that's been chronically underfunded? Like how is the experience of somebody coming on to Just Fund going to be different? Yeah, I mean, that's very important to us. You know, we want folks who are new to philanthropy and do, you know, even folks who are not new to philanthropy to have a positive experience, um, which can sometimes, unfortunately, be hard to come by. You know, so that's why we have open office hours. We do monthly webinars for groups. We have fact sheets in multiple languages to help organizations. If they get stuck at any point, they're emailing us and our team's helping them. Um, through the process, you know, we're teaching them how to use their common app to apply to other funds. You know, I mean, they could, and they're telling us what they need. For example, they want to be able to download the common app into a word document so they can take it offline and apply to another funder. But when you come in, I mean, you basically sign up for an account and then you, you can come into the portal and you'll see different funding opportunities you can apply to. And you're prompted to move through the common app. Like what's the name of your organization? What's your mission? What's the, what, tell us about your organization. Next page. What's the work you're doing now? Tell us about your team. What's your financial need? Next page. You'll answer some filter, some tags. So funders can find you um, with those tags and submit, you know, and, and the way we've operationalized the common app, every funder can ask up to three supplemental questions and take three attachments. So they're agreeing to the common app base, but some funders are asking additional questions, but only up to three, you know, and only up to three attachments. And the reason we do that is so that when it comes time to distribute the funds, there's no bottleneck, right? Because sometimes funders will make the decisions, but then when it comes time to cut the check, you need a 990 or you need, you know, the EIN, or of course you need that, you know, you need the address. So we collect all of that at the beginning. So after the funder makes the decision, the money can move. And we're not waiting six months to collect this additional information. That's why we collect that all up front. So if we go back to your story of like driving the Declaration of Independence around the United States in the trunk of your car at one point, and sort of you having this starkly juxtaposed vision of democracy, um, one which in my mind has sort of become a reality of sort of a concerted conservative effort to overtake our democratic institutions from the ground up. How do you feel like Just Fund is sort of working in that space to help us try to build an alternative pathway for our country and for our democracy? I mean, we have to we have to shift power to the front lines if we want to win on any issue we care about. 
that has to happen. And part of that shifting power is shifting resources. You know, we need to get serious about our portfolios, who we're funding and how we're funding to make sure that we can source, find, connect with, move money to the groups doing the actual work, right? Um, And ensure that they have what they need for their communities to thrive. That's what has to happen. And, you know, philanthropy is responsible for making sure that we make those the changes we need to make to to make money flow to these communities who've been historically excluded. We just we just need to do it. So I mean, I, I think there's a lot of times we get stuck in the perfect, you know, and we say perfect is, you know, is the enemy of the of good. And we need to just take steps and take, and that's why with Just Fun, I was like, we're just going to do this. It's and it may not be perfect. And certain, you know, the technology, you know, we're we need to improve the technology every day. But it, we're doing it, right? The money's moving. People are coming in and saying, yes, I want a different way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to, those of us who have the ability to change systems need to get serious about doing that. Mm. Yeah, I'm imagining a future where we don't just have a Stacey Abrams sort of image in our mind, but we think about every single person doing the tireless work at the grassroots level to transform their own community and build that transformation up um, to our federal government based on, yeah, the equitable enfranchisement of all people that are fighting to make this world a better place. (laughs) Yada, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. What a great conversation. Thanks for having it and, you know, holding this space. I so appreciate the chance to like reflect a little bit you know, even on my own personal journey um, versus the things that I've built, you know, to really just um, connect heart and mind and just appreciate the space. The Hero's Journey is brought to you by the Center for Food Safety. Production by Julia Ranney and Ashley Lukens. Editing and social media by Amanda Lillibridge, Duration, and Annalisa Camacho. Theme song by Walker Lukens and Adam Mason and audio engineering by Adam Mason. You can find us across all podcast platforms and follow us at Center for Food Safety on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and CFS True Food on Twitter. We're on the web at theheroesjourneypodcast.com. Do you have a hero you'd like to see on the podcast? Fill out the form in the show notes or email us at theheroesjourneypod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe and make sure you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you in a few weeks.